Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur with your host, Steve Kidd, third-generation minister and 30-year business coach. Listen in as amazing, world-changing authors, speakers, and coaches share their struggles and victories and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. Thanks for being with me here today. I appreciate you so much. I'm so glad for the times that we get to be together and talk about things that will help you live and work and love and thrive in all that you do in your life and business. Today, we want to talk about being money wise and having wise money. We all like money. We all, most of us, want to have even a little bit more money and we need to be money wise. And in order to do that, we need to know the wise ways to use our money. I've got four amazingly great guests that do some diverse things, but all of them are designed to help you live money wise and to use your money wisely. We want to use that so that you can be money wise and you can live as a thriving entrepreneur. So with that said, Let's jump right into our first guest. We're going to have limited commercials, so we're going to jump into it and go for it this whole time. Here we go. Join me in welcoming Shauna, the tech goddess. Thanks for being with us here today, Shauna. How are you doing? I am fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So to begin with, tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Ah, well, I am what's known as a tax strategist. So I am a specialist in reducing business owners' taxes. I'm in the top 1% in the country out of about 660,000 CPAs. And uh, yeah, this year to date, we've saved a little over 843 million for our clients. So that's, that's the fun bit of doing taxes, not the nasty side of having to pay them in the first place. The thing I always love about getting to talk to tax people, because I say this all the time, and then people are like, no, that's not real. I always say, you know, there are the things that many people dread, hate, would never want to talk about, that there is somebody that just loves doing it. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) And I love it when I talk to tax people, because that's one of those that is really triggering for a lot of people. And yet I can hear in your voice, it's something that you just love doing. Oh, you're a sweetheart. Well, yeah, I actually started off in astrophysics of all things. And so numbers and I just get along really, really well. And uh, after a few uh, twists and turns in the path, ended up in the tax world. And I would not trade it for anything. I love teaching and I love educating and I love guiding. And so that's what I get to do all day. So. That is so awesome. So just to be a little bit clearer, are you the person actually filling out people's tax forms or oh, no. what What does your day look like? <laughs> oh, no. You, you talked about people that absolutely dread things. That is something I dread, filling out the day-to-day tax forms. No. So what we look at, we look at an individual's situation. So are you married? Do you have kids? What is your focus, right? Do you have businesses? Do you have rented properties? Do you have cryptocurrency? Are you trying to focus on retirement? Are you trying to uh, buy a yacht? We had somebody buy a yacht. 
Do you want to, we've got somebody moving to Dubai next month. Um, so really looking at what people's goals are and then utilizing the tax code in the most effective and efficient way possible to reach whatever that goal is. So for example, if it's maximizing retirement, we might use a defined benefit plan or a cash balance plan. If it's buying the yacht, we might set up a charter company. If it's moving to Dubai, we might help set up a C corporation in Dubai to get the 10% tax rate. So completely depends on the person and what it is they're looking to do. But yeah, we're, we're the farthest thing from filling out tax returns. And that's probably one of the most common questions that we get is, well, isn't what you do what my CPA does? No, we are like the third leg of a stool. You know, you have the bookkeeper who does your day-to-day -day books, your CPA that prepares the tax returns, and the tax strategist that makes all the tweaks and modifications so that when your CPA does the tax returns, you're showing the bare minimum profit legally allowable by law. And we all as entrepreneurs absolutely love showing the bare minimum profit allowed by law, unless, <laughs> we're, unless we're intending to buy a house at the time. <laughs> and, you know, there are ways even around that, Steve, but I agree with you 100%. If you need financing, you can either, of course, go the traditional bank route, or you can set up your own bank, which means you never have to rely on the companies, the mortgage companies ever again, which is even more fun. Yeah, well, that's cool. All right. Well, um, we're going to keep you around for that, too, because there's a lot of us as entrepreneurs that it's like, I don't want to pay taxes, but I would like to, you know, Double buy a house. Sword. Um, Double edged yeah, sword every time. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. So, um, you know, just kind of start us off. There's so many things to teach, but for a person who has been doing their own taxes, they don't have a bookkeeper, um, they hate it, they avoid it, you know everybody. Um, <laughs> um, how do we start? What's the, what's step one that you teach people? Absolutely. Well, the, the very first thing, to be honest, is find the team, right? So if you hate doing it, that probably means that you take longer to do the work than someone who's a professional would, right? So yes, of course, that means you've got to pay a bookkeeper or pay a CPA, but if you're paying someone $1,000 to do your taxes and you can make $5,000 in the time it would have taken you to try to maybe do the tax return or maybe do that bookkeeping, it's worth every penny, right? So step one is outsourcing, making sure that you're finding the right team. Now, one of the most important questions that you can ask to all three of those professionals, your bookkeeper, your CPA, and your tax strategist, is what is their aggression level? And let, let me explain it from our perspective. So we, we ask every single new client this. The aggression level goes from zero to 10. Zero meaning the IRS never calls you never ever unless it's a random audit because of course that can happen. To a 10 meaning we're all going to jail. And so the most important question that you need to have the answer to in your mind is, well, where do you sit on that scale? Most entrepreneurs are sitting at a seven or an eight which means, listen, I don't mind if the IRS calls me, but I want the backup, the proof, the documents, the court cases, you know, what I want to make sure that I'm not going to jail, right? That we're, we're not doing Al Capone stuff, level nine, level 10, we're not going to jail, but I don't want to leave any money on the table. And what typically happens is as you're going through and you're interviewing a bookkeeper, bookkeepers are generally on the aggression scale zero to two, okay? 
a CPA, your regular standard CPA is generally on the aggression scale. If you find a really good one, three to four to five, maybe. Okay. It's the tax strategist's job <clears throat> to come in at a level, like for example, I'm a level eight. So it's our job to match whatever level you are as an entrepreneur. So if you are a level three, you want your bookkeeper, your CPA, and your tax strategist to all be coordinated at a level three. If you're a level eight, at a minimum, you want your tax strategist to be a level eight. Your CPA can maybe be a four, five, six, but they may not sign off on all of the strategies. So you might need to find a more aggressive CPA. And your bookkeeper is perfectly fine to stay at a level zero to three to four, because typically your CPA or your tax strategist can make any adjustments to the books as necessary. So interviewing and finding the right team of people is honestly step one. That makes a lot of sense. So um, the aggression level thing, and I'm so glad, um, you know, that you went through that because, you know, I think a lot of us don't really understand even what our aggression level is. Um, yeah. A lot of us work, I want to say, oblivious in that arena. How does a person identify both what they've been working at and what they should be working at based on who they are as far as the aggression level goes. Can you go into more more detail? Yeah, absolutely. So when we ask this question, uh, most people instantly start to chuckle. Okay. Uh, one, because everybody gets, everybody understands what level 10 is, right? Like no, nobody wants to go to jail. That's, that's not something that you really want in life. Right. M most people anyway, right. I have absolutely had a couple of clients say, well, I'm going to be at level 20 and they can come catch me. And I go, okay, well, I will go to a level eight. <laughs> so that's, if you want to work with me, that's how high we're going. But so in order to determine where you have been, okay, what you need to be looking at is what kind of strategies, because most of this relates to strategy, right? What kind of strategies have you been using on your tax return? So let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, there's something called an accountable plan, okay? And an accountable plan in my world is a level zero. An accountable plan allows your business to take expenses for things that you as an owner paid for with personal money that were really on behalf of the business. Okay. And most people have this, at least they're doing this all the time. They have a home office that they're writing off, right? You're paying your mortgage or your rent personally, but the business is getting a write-off for it. Uh, maybe you have a personal vehicle that you're driving for business purposes. You're writing off mileage, okay? An accountable plan should be a level zero strategy. But the piece that many CPAs miss is that an accountable plan is not just taking the deduction. An accountable plan is actually a physical document, a physical plan, right? Even, I guess, a PDF would count. But a physical plan in writing, it's a set of rules that you follow with relation to the accountable plan deductions. So if you have been taking a, a home office, if you've been writing off your car and you're looking at your tax return, but your CPA or your tax preparer has never ever mentioned the term accountable plan, you may think that you're doing something at a level zero because <clears throat> doing it properly an accountable plan is a level zero strategy. But if you don't have the actual plan, you're really unintentionally at a level nine, okay? And a lot of people don't want to be in that black, you know, area, like we're doing something wrong, but we're just hoping we're not getting caught, okay? So really what you're looking at to determine where you have been 
is what kind of strategies are you using? And having a second pair of eyes, look at those strategies and make sure they're being done properly. Okay, so reach out to a tax strategist, uh, have them look at which strategies you are using. So are you using the accountable plan? Are you using the master's exemption or the Augusta rule? Are you paying your kids on payroll, right? These, these things are level zero, two, three kind of levels on the aggression scale. Now, when it comes to what you want to be doing, this is really more of a question for you and if you're married for your spouse, okay? We often have, as I mentioned, the, the entrepreneur in the family will come in and say, I want a level eight. You know, I don't mind if the IRS calls me. I, as long as I have the backup and we're doing everything legally, I want a level eight. But the other spouse might be a level two. They might be much more conservative, right? So really this becomes an, an in-family discussion about, well, where do you want to be? You know, maybe you want to pick something in the middle, like a five. You know, you're okay leaving a bone on the table for the IRS. Uh, just in case they ever come looking. Um, and you're not really pushing those boundaries of being, you know, a level eight kind of aggressive. So. I absolutely love that. So um, let's go into some a little bit more advanced stuff. What are the kind of things that people should be doing that, you know, have been doing this for a while that you're always rolling your eyes about and going, man, why haven't you done this yet? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, I'm going to pick on paying your kids and the Augusta rule, the master's exemption. Okay. Now paying your kids, you are allowed to pay your children from the day they turn seven years old. And effectively you can pay them this year, uh, 2023, you can pay them a little under $20,000 each and none of that money is taxable. So it's a deduction for your business and it's not taxable to the child. So really, I'll, I'll give you the perfect example. I've got a client with 10 children, 10 of them, and seven of the 10 are above seven years old. Okay. So every single year, she's taking approximately 20,000 20, times seven kids. She's taking a $140,000 tax deduction against her business income every year, completely legal, completely above board. So it's one of the areas that I see, especially, you know, people with kids, nobody told them, nobody explained it to them. They're certainly not doing it. And that money to the children is allowed to pay for anything that is not a parental duty. So not food, clothing, and shelter. You, you can't charge your kids rent for living in your house, right? But a lot of kids are doing a lot of other things. So after school activities, maybe they want an iPad. Uh, at 16, they want a car, they need insurance for the car, cell phone bills, you know, these kinds of things. So the money that you pay to the children, you can either put it aside, put it into investments, you know, grow it without the kids even really realizing that it's there, get a nice little nest egg started for, for the little ones, right? Or you can use it, some of my parents use it in replacement of allowance, right? If you get straight A's, I'll help you buy a car. Well, that's really coming from the income that they've already paid the kid that's sitting in a savings account for the child. So paying your kids is one of the first ones. And then the master's exemption is probably my, my personal favorite, all right? What it allows you to do is 14 days. If you own your home, so this, this one doesn't work if you're renting, but if you own your home, even if it has a mortgage, you are allowed to rent your home to your business for up to 14 days a year. And whatever the rental income is from that rent is 100% tax-free. 
So depending on where you live, depending on the size of your home, depending on the business event that you're you know, paying the rent for, these kinds of things, the smallest amount of rent I've ever seen anywhere in the country, and you know, we service all 50 states, was about $500. So 14 times 500, we're looking at a $7,000 deduction on your tax return. The highest amount of rent I've ever seen was about 17,800 times 14. It was $249,200 worth of deduction against that client's tax return. So pretty spectacular for two very easy level two and three type strategies. I love that. Well, and here's the thing, everybody that's listening, there's so much more that can be done for you. And that's where Shauna comes in. Um, so Shauna, for people that would like to go deeper with this, how can they work with you? You're a sweetheart. Yeah, we, we look at about 400 plus strategies just at the federal level, let alone the thousands at the state and local level. So there's definitely a lot more where that came from. Uh, but yeah, the easiest place to find us is taxgoddess.com. So. Well, Shauna, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. If I was able to educate your audience, I will be thrilled. You know me, I love a good strategy. And when you have a strategy for something like your taxes and other things that maybe you're not looking forward to, it can make all the difference and help you be money wise and have wise money. With that said, we're going to jump right in to our very next guest. Join me in welcoming John Ostenson. Hey, John, how are you doing today? Hey, Steve, appreciate you having me. Doing great. Yeah, thanks for being with us here today. To begin with, tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Absolutely. No, here in Atlanta, Georgia, with my wife and three young kids and uh, uh, how I show up in the world, you know, I, I get to help people at the end of the day. I, I get to help people all across the country step into business ownership through what I call non-food franchising. And um, you know, that it's incredibly rewarding and validating. And uh, I'm an business owner myself of multiple franchises. So I get to, uh, uh, you know, draw on experiences that, that I've had as well. But at the end of the day, that's how I show up is I get to help people. It's pretty self-explanatory that non-food franchising means, you know, pretty much none of the restaurants or anything like that. But for people who aren't aware, can you give us an idea of both what it is, as well as some ideas of things that maybe people don't think of that are non-food franchises? Absolutely. No, when I say the F word franchise, people think fast food. And that's why I've kind of come out and said non-food franchising, which is actually the title of my book as well. Um, but no, I, you know, we're appreciative of those that, that are in the food industry. We certainly need them. But my humble belief is there are easier ways to make money. And, uh, you know, things that our clients are getting involved in. I, and when I say our clients, it's doctors, it's lawyers, it's corporate executives, it's current business owners, people across the spectrum, different ages uh, that have that desire, that entrepreneurial desire to step into ownership. Um, you know, it's things like property services. It's, it's what I call boring businesses, things that are cash flowing, understandable, uh, Amazon resistant. So it's things like, you know, insulation, gutters, dumpsters, floor coatings. It's, it's oil changes. It's, uh, you know, health and wellness concepts that, you know, support kids, pets, the aging population. End of the day, it's businesses that we need that aren't going out of style. They're non-trendy, um, you know, but they're understandable. They cash flow well. They're very scalable. And uh, yeah, we, we've never seen so much interest, Steve. It's an exciting time to be, uh, be in the seat that we're in. 
I love it. Can you give us an idea of something that is really non-traditional, something that people might not think of that they could get a franchise on? Gosh, I mean, I could go down the list, you know, but off the top of my head, we've had several clients recently step into a business uh, that provides temporary walls around construction sites. So you always have renovations going on in hospitals and airports and hotels and malls. Well, they put walls up around these. And, uh, you know, for, for some of our more passive owners, they love the idea of, you know, just having a team go out and set these up and then they collect monthly rent payments on these walls. They're essentially, it's a leasing business, if you will. Um, so there's so many niches like that or, uh, roll off dumpsters or I, I, you know, I own franchises myself. I was down in Florida, South Florida earlier this week, and there's a great custom orthotics and insole business that caters to the older population, a lot of diabetics and Medicare recipients. And so we were doing some site selection for retail stores. I, I'm buying a few down there uh, as myself, as I add to the, my portfolio, but you know, all these different niches, when you think about the macro trends and people getting older and, you know, what if we have a recession? Well, People are always going to spend on things they care about, their health, their kids, their pets. And so we I, we just love exposing our clients to all these different opportunities and niches they never would have thought of on their own. I love that. So what are we really looking at? I mean, you know, again, when people get confused with the food franchising, typically those models are the most expensive as well, typically. Um, but uh, in a non-food franchise type of a model, what kind of a money is uh, what kind of money is a person really looking at that they need to have in order to be able to do that? Yeah, you know, when you put it all together, you've got your startup cost, your franchise fee, and your working capital is kind of you're all in. I'd say most of the opportunities our clients are getting involved in are somewhere in the one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty range, uh, two hundred fifty thousand. Certainly, if we're doing laundromats or oil changes, I mean, it could go well north of there. But um, you know, quite a few are more remote businesses. Maybe it's dog training. Maybe it's um, you know, floor coatings, you know, businesses that don't need a physical brick and mortar retail based location. Oftentimes you can get in into those for a lot less. And so I'd say 150 to 250 and, and our clients fund those different ways. Some use cash, some many use an SBA loan, which, you know, we've got great providers for those. Some use an old retirement plan. Some will use a HELOC, you know, a lot of different ways of funding uh, the business. So perfect. So when you're doing what you do, what is the kind of thing that you wish people knew before they come to you so you could be the most effective for them? Yeah, you know, we're, we're very blessed to work with great folks. And, uh, you know, quite a few clients have read my book ahead of us even getting on a call. Um, quite a few have heard me speak before. And so they come in with some ideas and you know, tease up some good conversation. But, you know, ultimately, they can come in blank canvas and I kind of know the way to, to lead the conversation. And the great thing, Steve, is that our model, it's entirely free. We're funded by the brands very much like an executive search type model. Our clients never pay us a nickel. And so, um, you know, from the get go, we're never selling. We're, we're able to sit in that seat and really consult with them uh, and help them understand, Hey, here, based on what you've sh shared with us, here's what we see as the top 10 opportunities in your market, based on what we also see across the landscape out there in franchising, you know, what's resonating, why is it resonating, what's your investment level, um, you know, what's needed in your particular market. So, you know, we typically give, give them around 10 opportunities to look at. So I'd say, you know, what I wish people knew ahead of time, you know, I think they, our clients do a pretty good job of coming in open-minded, but you know, maybe if they were to come in and they, you know, before our call, start to take notice of, hey, what is my spouse saying that we we need more of in this area? Or, hey, 
is it ironic that I've got three friends that are currently in this industry? Maybe we're saturated. Um, so I think just starting to pick up clues and it's almost like shopping for a car. You, sometimes you don't know, um, you know, the fact that there are, you know, thousands of Chevy Tahoes around you until you're actually in the market for one, then you start noticing those things. So I think once you put the business owner hat on and you start looking around, then, uh, then things start becoming more obvious of what's needed uh, there in the market. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about your book. First of all, tell us the title of your book. Yeah, book is called Non-Food Franchising. And, uh, you know, it's the better path to business ownership. And it, it's just been my experience, Steve. You know, I've spent many years in the corporate world, but then I had that transition into franchising on the franchisor side, where I, where I served as president of Shelf Genie Franchise System and had the opportunity to support franchisees across North America. And, and I saw firsthand the power of the framework in just following the system and how it brought together people from a lot of different backgrounds and made them successful business owners. If they were disciplined and willing to execute kind of the playbook that we laid out, um, they found community with other franchisees. So I pull on that experience as well as the many that I've had as a franchisee myself and clients of ours. I mean, we, we've been very blessed the last couple of years, no one in the country does more placements than we do. And as a result, we get to see what is resonating. What what do people get excited about? What are they coming back and buying more of? And so um, in the book, you know, it's an easy read, about 95 pages, but I put together really A to Z. Here's how to think about it. Here's the financials. Here are the types of industries. Here are the types of ownership styles. We get into the legal aspects. We get into, um, you know, just strategies, long-term strategies. Uh, many of our clients, similar to me, will build out a portfolio portfolio of businesses over time. And so, and, you know, what are the strategies around how you can complement different types of businesses or diversify from those? Um, so we've gotten, gotten great feedback. It's been a humbling experience um, having it out there. And, and I'd love to offer a free copy to all of your listeners. Um, you know, if anyone comes out to FranBridgeConsulting.com, sign up for our free monthly newsletter. We'll also uh, provide you with uh, free digital copies of our book. And give us that URL again. Yeah, FranBridge, F-R-A-N, bridgeconsulting.com. Uh, sign up for our newsletter. And uh, certainly if you'd rather get a hard copy, go out to Amazon. Uh, you know, they're fairly reasonably priced and all profits go to a great uh, charity that we support, Hope International, uh, that's supporting entrepreneurs all around the world um, in some really neat ways. My son and I've been on a mission trip with this organization and we just think very highly of them. So certainly if you want to donate to a good cause, go buy it online, but otherwise we'd be happy to share a free digital copy if you come out to our website. Well, I love that. Thank you very much. So before you go, just uh, do a little bit of teaching for us here for a minute or two. Give us some ideas of why we should consider the possibility of, uh, you know, the next thing or the thing that we add to, whatever it is, um, is a franchise. Yeah. You know, and I'll start by saying franchising is not right for everyone. There's some that are too entrepreneurial that have to put their thumbprints all over it. And uh, I do have to give that feedback from time to time, but but for the vast majority, they just see the benefits uh, of franchising being the fact that, hey, you step in, you've got a playbook from day one, that if you go out and execute, there's a pretty good chance you're going to end up with XYZ results. You also get visibility into those results prior to even signing up. So you get to see how other franchisees are doing. What's their historical average? You get to talk to other franchise owners before making your purchase decisions. You really go in eyes wide open uh, into what you're purchasing, but you know that path to profitability. You're not having to question, is this even a 
profitable venture. You know, if you execute, it'll lead down that road. Um, you get a coach on the sidelines in that franchise or the better you do, the better they do. So they're there coaching, helping you. They've got a support team that's essentially your business partner. Um, you also have a community of other franchisees uh, in the system that, uh, you know, you're exchanging best practices with constantly learning from each other. So you're in business for yourself, but you're really not not by yourself with a good franchise system. Um, you're also, uh, you know, able to, um, you know, leverage large data sets. The franchisor knows what marketing works best for your situation. So they're able to use, use data from the past. And so you don't have to start from scratch. Um, you know, and then ultimately, when you think about down the road, you know, you're going to look to sell that business. And so, uh, you know, you want to know that you're going to be able to command high value. And it's really interesting. There was a study done recently. They looked at 10 years of transactions across 2000 businesses and like kind industries. And what they found was that those that were franchised traded at a multiple one and a half times those that were non-franchised. So from a resale standpoint, that end buyer also sees the value in it. And um, again, we feel very blessed to get to take our clients through a process that we've really expedited and we make it very uh, client friendly and I get them looking at some, some of the top opportunities in their market very quickly out of the gate. So would be more than happy to engage if, if any of your clients, you know, have an interest in learning more, I'm happy to jump on a call with them. And one last time, just because you brought that up, let us know the best way to be able to schedule to jump on a call with you. Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com, F-R-A-N, bridgeconsulting.com. My assistant will reach out, uh, offer you, uh, you know, our newsletter um, and a copy of our book. And then I uh, shall also offer a link to my calendar so we can set up a time to chat. So uh, more than happy to engage and I uh, would love to help as many as we can. Well, John, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Steve. Franchising is an amazing way for you to full-time or part-time be involved in a business and have another stream of income for yourself. Definitely something for you to check out to help you live as a thriving entrepreneur. With that said, we're going to jump right in. We're keeping going. Here's our next guest. Join me in welcoming Shadrach Sheikh. Hey, Shadrach, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Steve. How are you? I am good, thanks. So start us off uh, by telling us just a little bit about who you are and how you show up in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, United States or California, uh, the Bay Area would be the fourth place uh, to live in for me. So I've been, I've lived in a lot of countries before moving to the US, so starting from India, Dubai, Singapore, and now the US. Uh, I'm a startup founder um, uh, of a company called as CleverX. Uh, it's, a, it's a company that's changing the landscape of market research, especially when it comes to B2B market research and product research. Uh, and we're building some cool tools uh, and products around that space to solve problems for these users. So give us an example of some of the kind of tools that CleverX is creating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to give you a bit of an understanding, you know, there's almost like $75 billion is spent uh, all around the world on market research, um, out of which $55 billion is spent on online surveys. Now, one very surprising fact that a lot of people don't know about online surveys is that when a market researcher is conducting an online survey or a project, and the outcome that you get out of those you know, research projects, they have no idea who their respondents are. And that's a very shocking fact, which I learned a few years back working for one of the largest technology research company called as Gartner. 
So even if you spend a million dollars on an online survey project, especially in the B2B space, you have no idea who these respondents are. And that has caused a lot of problems in the industry in the last few years where 40% of online surveys are fraud. And so every $100 that you spent on online surveys, $40 are a waste. Uh, and what CleverX is doing is building a LinkedIn kind of platform. So it's a, it's a professional network where people can sign up on the platform and they can participate in different research studies from all around the world. So we have you know, companies who uh, their research gets powered uh, through CleverX, like the TikToks of the world, the Snapchats, Twitter, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, et cetera. And all these companies are using the platform to get the real identity of their respondent using our platform and conducting research in the most fastest way possible with all the uh, confidence to 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 conduct those research projects. And I think that's a that's a very fascinating new thing for this industry. Uh, we believe that this is what status quo for the industry should look like, where every single research respondent's identity should be transparent to a market researcher, so they can make confident decisions and be in control of that process. Um, and and I think we've been pretty successful doing that. In the last year alone, we grew grew almost six times in terms of revenues. Uh, and that's a testament to to the fact that people appreciate what we're building for them. And if I heard you correctly, you said 40% or more of the surveys that are out there these days are, you know, not real, basically. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's it sounds funny, but there are people out in the world whose sole job is to take up surveys. It doesn't matter what kind of survey it is. And it's become like a like a you know, uh, black market or an industry in itself, because people know that your identity is not going to be released uh, uh, because of GDPR or privacy laws. And uh, they just take up service and make money on it. Uh, and that's not a great way to, you know, get research work done because the people who are taking up those surveys are actually not the relevant people who should be taking up those surveys. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So, other than or even with going to your company, what are some of the kind of things that people should be asking of a company doing surveys or using their product that does a survey for them uh, before just, you know, starting and putting out a survey in the, in the world? Yeah, uh, great question. So uh, we always get this question from, uh, especially from startups, you know, who, who are trying to conduct market research for the first time. To either found product to find product market fit or just get understanding of their, you know, from their prospective customers who would buy their product in the future. There are two types of research. I would I would you know try to categorize it in two ways. One being asynchronous research and the other one being, uh, you know, uh, synchronous research. So asynchronous research is something like an online survey which means that you can put it out there and try to ask 100 people to take part in an online survey and get a collective intelligence on a particular topic. So if you wanna get collective intelligence for a similar kind of uh, people or uh, personas in the business world, uh, an online survey would be a good way to, to start off that process. Uh, when you wanna go deeper onto a topic uh, to learn uh, uh, you know, specific things on a topic, uh, and have a free flow conversation, just like we are having right now on the podcast. We always recommend our customers to do qualitative research, which is like doing one-to-one -one video calls or focus groups with uh, 
uh, you know, senior business professionals to get deep dive on their, you know, very individual experience and their opinions on that particular topic. So it depends what your goal is when you're trying to, you know, do market research for your uh, for being a large enterprise or a startup uh, and figuring out what makes more sense for you. Do you want to get that collective intelligence through a programmatic, very structured way of doing online surveys? Or do you want to have a free flow conversation uh, with one individual at a time and go deeper on a particular topic? So I think that would be the first step I would recommend to people who are trying to conduct research uh, before even diving into like or choosing a method of how to do research because that matters, the context matters a lot. So when a person comes to you, um, when do you, when do you like to have them come? Would you prefer that they've uh, used other um, uh, other products, or would you prefer that you know somebody is just getting ready to to take a foray into surveys and uh, you know and come to you right off the bat? What what's ideal for you guys? Yeah, I think uh, you know more than what's ideal for us. We always like to think what's ideal for our customer base. Uh, in our view, I think. Uh, people who are trying to uh, explore a particular topic or an industry um, uh, to go uh, deep dive into it, they should always consider doing secondary research uh, using public data that's available all around the world. So a small example would be, you know, using something like a chat GPT to get a summary on a particular topic or an industry, just to understand what's really going on there. Uh, or just doing your Google search and finding out different blogs uh, or, you know, uh, going to public communities where people are discussing about a particular topic. So having that understanding opens up your, uh, uh, you know, uh, mind to different perspectives, which are shared online uh, in a public forum. Uh, once you have that, then it's 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 a good way to go deeper into very proprietary and private data, which is where I think we come in uh, because we give access to you know thousands of senior business professionals uh, in 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 different industries through our platform, just like you would do it on LinkedIn. But the ability to uh, work with these people in a trusted way uh, and getting that proprietary data or insights uh, which are not publicly available is where we come in as as a platform. I love that. So I'm assuming that then it, with that, you have the whole marketing piece of getting the folks from out in the wide world into, you know, the specific network, if you will, for the individual entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, see, the, the industry has been there for a long time. And LinkedIn was the primary source for market researchers to connect with their research respondents. But the challenge in the last few years with LinkedIn is the amount of spam that we get. Uh, and the second problem is uh, LinkedIn doesn't have a monetization mechanism. What, what do I mean by that? So if I have to reach out to you, Steve, and you are, uh, we both are strangers to each other, I'm willing to pay you the money to participate in, in an online survey, let's say $100 for your time, 15 to 20 minutes of your time. You still cannot trust me if you're going to get paid after you participate in that survey. And that's that leaves a huge vacuum in the industry. Uh, so even if two people want to transact knowledge or insights to, to uh, money, um, the trust mechanism or the monetization mechanism doesn't exist. So what these individuals or professionals are doing, uh, uh, you know, they're signing up on our platform, creating their profile, they're importing their LinkedIn data into our platform. So they have a profile where market researchers, product researchers, startup entrepreneurs, uh, or even big enterprises can reach out to them directly in a trusted environment. So they know that they're guaranteed to get paid 
when they participate into a research project through CleverX. And that makes it super easy for them. Uh, so they can be on, a, on their dining table, um, you know, having a meal with their families or loved ones and still take up a 15, 20 minute survey and make $100 out of it. Uh, and I think that's very valuable to a researcher as well, because they don't have to hunt for people on LinkedIn and convince strangers to participate in research. Uh, a small um, metric is if you send 20 emails on LinkedIn, you will get one acknowledgement back. And that acknowledgement doesn't mean it's a positive uh, you know, response. It could be a positive or a negative. So that's a you know, very small percentage of people getting back to you because of those trust or spam issues. Uh, and I think that's the problem we are solving here on our platform. I really love that. So for folks that want to use your service, um, how do they get in contact with you? Yeah, um, you know, uh, if someone wants to join the platform to be a research participant, uh, it's very easy. You go on our platform, which is cleverx.com, sign up for free. And I promise for all our users, which is now 10,000 plus, uh, you know, senior business professionals, uh, it's always going to be free to be on the platform. Uh, for market researchers who want to work with these, uh, you know, uh, individuals and conduct research on them, you can actually sign up for free as well and, uh, you know, search for people, connect with them through chat uh, or messaging feature into our platform. And you can even conduct your online surveys or do video calls through our platform right away. Uh, but I'm happy to answer anyone's questions. If someone wants to reach out to me, usually I'm available on LinkedIn uh, most of the time um, and, and they can reach out to me through LinkedIn or Twitter and, uh, you know, we can go from there. Well, just before we go, uh, give us some words of encouragement about how effective uh the surveys and, and all of that can be for a person's business. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, um, uh, time is a good testament to it. This industry has grown, um, you know, 2x in the last eight years alone. Um, and there's a reason for it. Companies who have access to unique proprietary insights uh, tend to perform better. Uh, just because you know uh, certain things more than your competitors uh, or you want to even create a category defining or an innovative product or a service, uh, having that information from people who are either going to buy it from you in the future or who understand that space for the last few decades uh, is an extraordinary thing. I, I do not even think that money can equate to that knowledge or insight because multi-million, multi-billion dollar decisions could be made based on just a 10-minute conversation of getting that golden nugget to make, make those important decisions. But I think a, a lot of companies are understanding it, um, be it startups to either find product market fit or even large enterprises to get unique uh, you know, competitive edge. They're trying to figure out these things. And, and I think every company, when it's trying to produce a new so a product or a service should tend should try to do a you know detailed market research project before they really dive into it or put a line of code into their product. Well, I love that. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Steve. Uh, I appreciate being here. Sometimes your marketing is only going to be as good as the research, the data that you get that then begins to determine your sales strategy. What a great way to be able to be money wise by knowing what's going to work so that you know then what's going to sell. Here we go. One more guest coming right back up for you. Join me in welcoming Jeffrey, Jeffrey Camus. Hey, Jeffrey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Steve. How are you doing? 
I am great, thanks. So to begin with, tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Well, um, I, I guess the 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 way I'd be defined is an entrepreneur. I've had a bunch of different businesses. I started when I was uh, I was always involved in sports. When I was in my twenties, I started one of the very first fantasy sports sites called Doctor Sats Fantasy Sports, which was uh, a great business for me that I ran for eighteen years, and I was doing player evaluations. Uh, come now, many years later, I'm involved in sports betting and gaming funds, which is essentially an investment vehicle, an exchange traded fund that trades on Nasdaq that gets people exposure in a diversified way to the gaming, the growing gaming and sports betting kind of uh, thing that's going on in, in all over the world, but uh, more specifically over 30 plus states in the United States now. All right. So normally when you think about uh, gambling related things, there's that uh, disclaimer that says, you know, these should not be played for investment purposes. So please explain to us the investment aspect of what you do. Right. So this isn't like you're investing in a bet. This is a bet on the companies that are in the industry. So like, for example, a lot of these are some of these companies, you know, people have known for years, you know, something like Caesars or MGM or a company like Boyd's that's been around or Wynn. Now, those are always, you know, those are companies that are publicly traded on the stock market. So what this fund does essentially is is it it's a basket of these companies and there's a lot of newer companies too that people may know or they may not know but there's a company like Flutter they're actually they own the company FanDuel which more people in the United States are more familiar with they're in, they're a London and Ireland based company or there's of course DraftKings which people know if they play fantasy sports or they've seen any kind of sporting event because their advertisements are 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 very common ubiquitous and so what this is is essentially you can participate in an investment in these sports betting and gaming stocks. The cager in the space is about 15% annually. And so what this does is it gives you a chance to invest in a growing industry in the companies, not in bets, not like in a bet, like, hey, we want to bet on the Lakers game or something like that, but in, in the companies that actually grow and are building and growing in revenue because of this, the kind of the broad expansion of this industry. So there's the old saying that says the house always wins. So in this case, you get a chance to be essentially part of the house. Yeah, in a way, that's kind of like I always tell people, hey, if you like, you know, the old adage in investment is invest in what you know or things you like. And if you're somebody who takes part maybe in sports betting and you enjoy it, maybe it's like a hedge for you. So, yeah, maybe you don't make money there. But if you really like it and you like this industry, knowing it's growing so much, you know, you get a chance to invest in it as well. So that is kind of like a hedge. So for people who are unfamiliar with the sports betting industry, uh, give us some examples of some things that have changed. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people have probably watched too much TV and they're thinking about bookies and, you know, if you don't pay it, somebody's going to come and break your legs and things like that. So give us an idea of what the industry is really like these days. Right. Well, we've had massive technological transformation and what it really is now is many people you know, of course, you can still go to Las Vegas or Atlantic City or places like that. But many local communities now have casinos. You know, Chicago has casinos and places you can bet, not just on the Indian reservations, but it's legalized there. And essentially what it is, is it's done by professional companies that are, you know, licensed by the, you know, SEC. They have, they're publicly traded. These companies have regulations and compliance issues. And, and of course, it's not like the old days where you see somebody in the back room. There still are those people, but this isn't what this is about. This is more about investing in real companies that are traded on the stock market that 
you know, in, in legitimate business ventures. And when you start talking about companies like Harris and Caesars and, um, you know, even some of the online sports betting ones that you mentioned, um, I mean, these are huge companies. They're multi, multi-billion dollar companies. So it isn't like, you know, somebody saying, hey, me and my brother got together and we're creating this company. I mean, we're talking about some of the largest companies um, in the world, really, aren't we? Yeah, sure. And if you bring up a company like in this industry, you have uh, you have different you have different people in the ecosystem, but let's go one company that's been around for a long time, Las Vegas Sands. That's a $50 billion plus company. Probably has a little more valuation left, uh, more cap left in it, but it's a, these are large companies like Las Vegas Sands. Win, of course, is also a very large company. You know, these are, you know, that's a 12 or $13 billion company. And a lot of these companies have operations all over the world, whether it's in the Philippines or in, you know, in different places in Malaysia, Singapore, or China, or Hong Kong, or Macau. And so, yeah, these are global companies. There are also a lot of upstart companies that, you know, we just saw in the industry in the last couple of weeks, we've had like three or four acquisitions. And so what happens is there will be smaller players. One of the reasons I think uh, investing in a diversified ETF makes so much sense is single stocks pose more risk. You know, uh, these can run up really hot and then they can get really cold. But in a portfolio where you have 30 or 40 holdings, you're going to get exposure to an industry that's growing without taking single stock risk. I love that. So it's really um, a different look at a mutual fund. Just uh, you know, the funding, what your funding is, a little different. Is that that's that's too right? Well, mutual fund, <laughs> no, mutual funds really. No, it's actually it's right on. Mutual funds are actually they're not going to go away, but they're growing in 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 less popularity. They're 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 declining popularity. They're part of a lot of people's IRAs and your investment vehicles. And that's the way it was set up. But ETFs are more like where you can exchange, where you can trade on the exchange. They're both kind of traded a little bit differently. Like a mutual fund, you only trade once a day. And that's traded at the net asset value of the underlying equities that are in it. I know that's a little bit complicated for, for most people, but an ETF is essentially traded all throughout the day. It can be traded, you know, right when the market opens to right when it closes. It can also be traded before the market opens and after the market closes for a little bit. So they're they're a little bit different. And one of the things about exchange traded funds over mutual funds, not to make this the whole topic, but is that they're less expensive. ETFs are much more affordable. In the old days, mutual funds would have things like load fees and other kind of advertising and marketing fees. An exchange traded fund has like a management fee. And it's a single management fee for the entire fund. Mutual funds sometimes have a, have some hidden fees, and that's kind of why the industry is shying away or going. You'll see a lot of mutual fund conversions into exchange-traded funds. I love it. That's a really brilliant investment strategy. So um, give us some ideas of what the typical person starting out, you know, it's the maybe even their first investment, first time doing this for sure. Um, what legitimately should a person do? I mean, are we talking tens of thousands or five bucks or, you know, where, where are, what's legit? <laughs> well, like, well, let me give you an example. I have two young, I have young, they're, they're men now they're 23 and 22, but I have two boys who, you know, I want them to just take advantage of something like a Roth IRA, which means that they can essentially get taxed on money that they put away now, but later when it, as it grows, They'll only be taxed, uh, you know, a certain amount when they take it out. Um, and that's a, that's a better savings, especially when you're not making a lot of money or you're starting out building your wealth. Uh, Roth IRAs go up every year. So it's somebody like under $100,000 a year can take advantage of a Roth IRA. And in a holding or in a portfolio like that, if you have $50 or $100, that's a good place to start. 
maybe with bi-weekly or bi-monthly withdrawals from your checking account where you put in 25 bucks. And that's the thing about, I just, just for an investing tip overall is just, you know, take advantage of this compounding concept because it's real, you know, don't only compound money, but compound knowledge in your life too. That's actually somebody told me that. And I thought, I always say it to other people now because I think it's so smart, you know, because we're here learning every day and you think of yourself as like a sponge and the day you die, your sponge will be so heavy because of all the knowledge you've compounded. It's kind of a, kind of a neat thing to think about, but I would say whatever you can afford is what you should invest. And but it's good to take it out of your paycheck. You don't see it. Do a regular kind of draw. And then really simple investments for when you're starting might be just an index fund, like get event, uh, get some exposure to the S&P 500. When you're younger, you might want to take more risk by being in something like the triple Qs, which is a little more the tech stocks. But you know that you have to kind of define on your own. But really, ETFs are great for young investors, for new investors, because they get exposure to the market. And again, getting away from single stock risks is, is a good thing to do. Because a fund like like this fund, the iBet Sports Betting and Gaming Fund, gets you diversified exposure. So you get exposure to, like in this case, my fund has global stocks, things that are really kind of hard to buy. So we have stocks that are traded in Hong Kong. We have uh, Swedish stocks, uh, London stocks, Australian stocks. To do that on your own, it's really costly because most times you're only going to be able to buy like ADRs which are depository receipts, which aren't kind of, they don't trade exactly the same as a stock where you have the position and you actually are entitled to the company. ADRs are a little bit different. It's a more complex topic, but yeah, I would just say start small, try to invest it in, in a regular way, you know, throughout time, like over time, because then you'll get the compounding and dollar cost averaging impact. And that's what, I, that's pretty much the simplest way to start. For somebody that's not familiar with the power of compounding interest, give us an idea where a person, you know, that's in their mid-20s who puts away, you know, say 50 bucks, a, you know, every other week or a month or whatever, give them an idea of just how much that can actually compound into by the time they're 65 and ready to retire. Steve, I wish I had this chart right now, but I, I do one every now and then, and it's something like, I start with something like 20,000 at the age of like 20, 20 some, like 24 or 25. So say you start with like 20,000 and let's say you put in the, I think the numbers that I did, it was something like a thousand a month or 500 a month. You could end up with quite a bunch of money at 65 over upwards of a million to a million and a half. And I don't have those figures on me. And that's taking the average rate of return of the market, which is somewhere between six and 8%. Generally in really good markets, you can count on seven or eight. We haven't had that the last couple of years. But over time, what you do in the market is by staying there, you get the general compounding kind of number that that usually returns, which is six or eight percent. So, you know, that could be you can have upwards of a million dollars. And I there's a book that I like. Uh, I have a lot of clients that are teachers. My mom was a teacher. My brother and sister both had their education credentials. And there's a book called The Millionaire Next Door. And it's really about somebody who was very wise about their money. And teachers tend to be very frugal, not that they don't spend and have nice lives, but they tend to be smart about their money because you know they're not they're kind of on a, a set set income. And so a lot of these teachers have million dollars, a million dollars saved by the time they retire and it's by putting away money, being really smart with it and investing over time. I love that. So um for uh for people who really want to work with you um Tell us how they could get in contact with you and what's the best way to start with you. Sure, Steve. Uh, you can look me up. You can look up Inherent Wealth Fund. 
which is the company name that runs or essentially is the advisor to the iBet Sports Betting and Gaming ETF. Or it's very searchable. If you look up sports betting, investing, my fund will come up pretty, pretty clearly. Or the iBet Sports Betting and Gaming ETF. And Jeffrey Kamish, you can also search, of course. Well, before we go, Jeffrey, give us some uh, some words of encouragement about why now would be a good time to invest specifically in this kind of a way. Okay. Well, what it what it is is I think with when people get afraid, a good time to actually think about doing something, and it's it's called when there's blood in the streets. And the best money is made a lot of times when everyone else is afraid to go in. And the reality is this is when people like Warren Buffett start buying because they know that the market's going to turn around and they're long investors. And if you can look at it and take a long outlook in it, like a 5, 10, 15, 20-year outlook, it's good when there's blood in the streets. You might have to ride out some waves, but when, you don't, when, when it starts to feel like it's a good time to invest, you're probably already late. And the most important thing for investing is that you stay invested. And you keep that money in there so you can ride the goods and the, and the, and the bad times. Because market timing is, it's impossible. It's really not. There are people that can do it, but most people cannot. And so just stay invested. And I think right now especially is a good time because we're at the end of this interest rate uh, run up from the, from the, from the uh, Fed. And I think it's, you know, people will be looking into, you know, coming out of bonds, just being specific. A lot of people bought the six-month bond uh, in the early part of the year. That's going to expire somewhere towards August. That's going to put a lot of money back out in the marketplace. You'll see it. And people are going to want to probably invest back in the stock market. Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. Thanks for having me, Steve. There is so much money in sports betting. And although I'm not going to recommend to you that a business strategy is to bet on sporting games, um, a great business strategy might be getting money off of the whole industry that is sports betting. What a great way to be money wise and to be extremely wise with your money. And the reason why we want to be money wise is because we need to make the difference that only you can make in this world. Because you are uniquely brilliant. You were created for a purpose and the world needs you. We need you to be money wise. We need you to be wise with your money because good people just like you when they get more money, we'll do more good in the world. And when we're wise with our money, the world, the universe, God, if you will, helps us bring back even more money. And it just keeps coming and coming. And we get wiser and wiser with our money. I hope that helps you today and that it'll allow you to live as a thriving entrepreneur. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time. If you're an author who's on a mission, stand out with your brand out. <laughs> Check this out, guys. Yep, everything's marketing, and marketing is everything. Your existing book can become a best-selling book, or even, hey, like mine, a number one international best-selling book in five days. Listen, if your business isn't known by everybody, it's obscurity, and that's death, right? The same thing is true for your book. If you're not happy with the way your book is performing, you got that far, and then it just fell off the face of the planet kind of feeling, go to yourbestsellertoday.com, schedule a talk with 
Steve. It's risk-free. It's guaranteed. It's proven. We've done it thousands of times. What are you waiting for? Yes, yourbestsellertoday.com. This time next week, you could have a beautiful seal on your book and get the attention that you deserve. Reach the people that you came to serve. Come on now. What are you waiting for? Grab a pen. Here we go. All you got to do is book a call, yourbestsellertoday.com. Go to yourbestsellertoday.com. Book a talk with Steve. It's proven. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. All you have to do is say yes to your destiny. Destiny.